Today we're beginning a new series of messages, as Dan alluded to earlier, called Then Sings My Soul. And I hope you like that song that uh, we did at the beginning that, you know, Dan told you was a little a newer song. I hope you picked up on all of the different song titles that are in that song. Um, because we're going to sing that song a lot over the next couple of weeks. It's going to be kind of our theme song as we head through this series. And uh, one of the reasons why I picked that song, I heard that song um, late last year. And I'd been thinking about what I wanted to do for Easter, and, and I was just kind of kicking some st- ideas around. And I'd had this idea, I wanted to do a sermon series about some classic hymns. And I heard that song, and I, it just all kind of got my brain going to think, you know, this would be a good Easter series. And so, one of the reasons I wanted to do that is because, I don't know about you, but growing up, I judged every other church that I ever went to by their hymnal. Anybody else ever, like you, like, you go to visit a different church and, like, you just pick up their hymnal, right? And you, you look through, through it and see what songs are in it. And I would look through it and see if they were songs that I knew, that songs that we sang. And, I, and I'm telling you, I judged every, still to this day, every song or every church by what hymnal they have. Um, when I was growing up, we had a, an old hymnal. And I, don't, I couldn't tell you who it was by or who did, but a lot of churches in our area had it because... And this is how I knew it was all the same one. Hymn number 500 in that hymnal was When the Roll is Called Up Yonder. Anybody remember that song? Yeah. And I don't know why that stuck with me. I think it was because that was maybe the only song that my grandfather ever would sing. And I don't know that it was because he liked the song. I think he just liked to say the word yonder. And so so I would go to other churches and I would look at their hymnal and, and I'd go straight to 500. And if it wasn't When the Roll is Called Up Yonder, I said, well... I was done. You know, I, did, I didn't hear anything that the preacher said. So if you're looking through our hymnal right now, number 500 is not when the roll is called up yonder. It's 774. Um, and I'll tell you, the second reason I know that is because, number one, I looked it up right before I came up here. But number two is this is when we moved into our new building at Willisburg Christian, we got new hymnals. And we have the same hymnals that, that you all have when you moved into this new building. And by the way, in the old building... You had the old hymnals, number 500 was when the roll was called up yonder. So I knew when I interviewed here six, seven years ago that this was a place I could be because you all had good, hymn, good hymnals. So anyway, so here's what we're going to do over the next couple of weeks. We're going to look at uh, uh, some different hymns, some classic hymns, hymns uh, of our faith that that maybe you grew up with, maybe you didn't grow up with. But, but either way, we're going we're gonna to look at them, we're going to kind of contextualize them, we're going to look at the stories behind them, and look at the theology around them. And my hope is that through this series, that, that we'll bring a little bit more meaning and understanding to these songs, and, and it'll help us to understand the value that they have, and, and the value that they are to our faith. And also, that the next time that we sing some of those songs, that maybe you'll sing them just a little bit differently. That they'll have just a little bit more meaning to you because you understand the background, maybe the backstory behind that song. How many of you ever heard the phrase, music is good for the soul? Most of you, yeah. What music though, right? Because when I was growing up, my mom said music was good for the soul until she heard my music. Now I'm going to tell you, for the most part, I was a country music kid. But I remember asking my mom one time for a cassette. Yes, a cassette. Um, some of you that are younger, you're like, what is that? It was the thing that came before CD and before streaming. But a cassette, I I didn't have to do the 8-tracks, Mike, so sorry. Um, 
I asked my mom for a cassette, and it was by a rap group, and I don't even remember what the rap group was, but, but there was a song on it specifically that she had heard that she did not approve of, and she was not going to get me that cassette tape. And my sister, who is five years older than me, really took every opportunity she could to throw me under the bus. She said, well, Mom, that's not near as bad as the other tape you bought, Adam. I was like, shut up. Like, like I like it. And she said, well, what other one did I get? She said, that NWA tape. That's not nearly as bad as that. My mom thought NWA was the wrestling that I watched on Saturday mornings. She didn't realize it was also a, a group that had some pretty hard lyrics at times. And uh, so my mom got rid of both of those tapes. And still a little bitter about that with my sister. Uh, yeah, but, but we know music is good for the solo, right? Music is good for soul. Music makes the fun times, the good times, they make it a little bit better, don't they? Uh, it makes the exciting times more exciting. It makes those hard times that we go through just a little bit more bearable. Music has such a power in a good song at the right time in your life. It'll move you deeply, won't it? I've seen that happen time and time again. Music is good for the soul. Today we're going to look at a song that uh, has the word soul in the title. It's one of my favorite hymns. Uh, today's song that we're going to talk about is the song, the classic hymn, It Is Well With My Soul. And I want to tell you that this message today I think is a message for all of us because when you hear the backstory of that song, I think all of us can identify with it a little bit because all of us at some point or another have had some sort of loss. Every family goes through uh, some sort of loss. We've all had to deal with suffering, maybe an injustice, maybe pain or discouragement. And maybe when you've gone through those things, you've even questioned why, God? God, why am I in this circumstance? God, why have you put me here? God, where are you at right now? Anybody else ever ask those questions? It's okay to be honest about that. I ask those questions. I think all of us have at some point in our life. And so there's one key verse that I want us to focus, on, focus in on today, and I want this verse to just resonate deeply with you. I want, I want you to hear it, and I want you to hear it, in your, and it go into your brain, and from your brain go down that funnel that we call a neck, and into, into your heart and your soul. This verse that, that we're going to look at today, we're going to use, is, is out of the book of chap, uh, Psalms, chapter 34. Psalm 34, it's one little verse, 18, says this, The Lord is close to the brokenhearted, and He saves those who are crushed in spirit. He's close to the brokenhearted, and He saves those who are crushed in spirit. The song, It Is Well With My Soul, it was written by a guy by the name of Horatio Spafford. That's a fun name, isn't it? Horatio Spafford. Spafford was very, a very successful lawyer in Chicago, Illinois, and he was doing very well. He and his wife, Anna, it just seemed like everything that they touched turned to gold. They, they, were, they were so prosperous. I mean, anybody have friends like that? <clears throat> just whatever they do, they're good at it. And they're the kind of friends that, like, you want to be friends with them because they're good at everything, but they're also the kind of friends that just make you mad because they're good at everything, right? And, and, Horatio and his wife Anna, that's how life was going for them. Everything they touched turned to gold. They were, they were prosperous. Even as a family, they were prosperous. They had four daughters. And you would think after four daughters, you'd, you'd quit trying, right? Because who, who wants to deal with five daughters? But every man that has four daughters wants what? A son. And finally, he got his son. Not long after Horatio and Anna gave, and Horatio's wife Anna gave birth to a son, his the son contracted pneumonia, and he died. Now, I've never lost a child, and, I, and, and I'll tell you, I can't imagine the pain of losing a child. I can't imagine the pain that he was in after his son died. 
But that's not where his losses stopped. One year after his son died, you know, see, he was very wealthy in Chicago and he had a lot of real estate properties. And so one year after his son died, there was a thing called the Great Chicago Fire. Anybody ever hear of that, the Great Chicago Fire? A couple of you, some of you need to go back to history class. Yeah, the Great Chicago Fire. Well, he lost everything in that fire. He lost all of his real estate properties. He lost all of his financial means in that fire. Does that not sound kind of like a modern day Job? This is kind of like Job, that you're wealthy and then all, everything's going good for you and then all of a sudden it's not. Well, after he lost all his financial means, his losses still weren't done. He and his wife decided that, that they needed to get away, that they needed to take their daughters uh, and, and just get away from everything. They needed to decompress and, and just take a vacation with everything that had been going on and you know, the loss of their son and now the loss of their, their real estate properties and all that stuff. They just needed to, to get away. And so instead of jumping on a train and going out to California or something like that, they decided that they wanted to go to Europe. And so they started to plan a vacation, <clears throat> excuse me, over in Europe. And so they had it all planned out, ready to go. And just a few days before they were to leave on that trip, Horatio found out that there was something that was coming up at the law firm that he just couldn't get away for. I hate when that happens, don't you? You ever have that happen? You got something all planned out, you're ready to go, you, you've got all your, your details lined out, and then something comes up and just interrupts all your plans, and you, and you just can't make it happen. Well, he told his wife and his daughters, hey, he said, I, I can handle everything here. You all go on and go on over to Europe. You all start having fun on the trip, and, and you all do your thing, and, and I'll be over there. In fact, I'll just be two days behind you. I'll get everything taken care of here, everything lined out. It'll be fine, and I'll just be two days behind you. And so they begin to make new plans, and they proceed forward with those plans. And his wife and his daughters, they, they pack all their bags, and they get on a, on a boat, and they start to sail across the ocean. And as they're sailing across the ocean, their vessel, their boat, was struck by another sailing boat, by another vessel, and his four daughters drowned, and the boat sank. Anna, his wife, was floating around on some wreckage when she was picked up by another boat that came by. She was taken to a place in Cardiff in South Wales where she sends a telegram to Horatio. And it just says this, saved alone, what shall I do? What shall I do? Well, Horatio immediately picks up, packs up his bags and he's on the next boat headed to Cardiff. And on his way to Cardiff, the captain of the boat uh, calls out to him, brings him out to the bow of the boat. And he says, uh, Horatio, this is the place where your daughter's boat was struck. This is the place where it sank. This is the place where your daughter's drowned. And so in the vicinity of where his four girls drowned, in the midst of all that pain, in the midst of all that loss, the loss of his son, the loss of his finances, now the loss of his four daughters, in the midst of all of that, that's where Horatio Spafford pens the lyrics to this song, It Is Well With My Soul. He writes this, When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, wow, that'd be hard to say. He says, whatever my lot... Thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Now, I don't know about you, but if you're anything like me, that's not what I'm writing at that point in my life, in that point in time. Are you? 
I'm not writing, it is well with my soul. I've just lost my son. I've just lost all my finances. And, and then shortly after, I've lost all my daughters. Those aren't the words that I would pen in the midst of all of that pain. But that's what Horatio does. That's what Horatio Spafford writes. And the truth of how he does that, the truth of how something occurs like that for someone is very deep. It's very personal. And it's a very intimate thing. But it, but it resonates from knowing the Scriptures. It resonates from, from that psalm that we just read, Psalm 34, that the Lord is close to the brokenhearted, and He saves those who are crushed in spirit. You know, it's very possible that some of you are sitting here today, and, you're, and you find yourself maybe in, in a marriage that you just, it's not what you thought it was going to be. It's not what you believed it was going to be. You thought it was going to go to the distance, but now you, you're just, you're, the foundation is just crumbling around your feet, and you're asking, what shall I do? Or maybe you're dealing with the, the tragic loss of a loved one, very untimely as you, as you see it, and this shouldn't have happened. You know, these aren't the things that happened to me, and you're sitting back and you're saying, what, what should I do? Or maybe you're sitting here today and you got you know substance abuse things going on, or maybe you're addicted to pictures and images, and you know it's one of those things that you know everybody else deals with this, but you never thought it would be you, and you've become addicted to that stuff, and you sit here and you ask the question, what am I going to do? What shall I do? That's the question. And today, we need to understand some truths that are very deep within Scripture, very deep within us is where they need to be. And so the first thing that I want you to understand is this, in order to answer this question, what shall I do, is that even in the midst of pain, God is still present. If you don't hear anything else today, hear that. That even in the midst of pain, God is still present. God is still present because He's close to the brokenhearted. And He saves those who are crushed in spirit. I love what Oswald Chambers says about that. He says, any great calamity in the natural world, death, disease, bereavement, will, will awaken a man when nothing else would and is never again the same. We would never know the treasures of darkness. Pay attention to that phrase. We would never know the treasures of darkness if we were always in the place of placid security. Hmm. Treasures of darkness. There's such a thing as that. When I first read that quote by Oswald Chambers, I thought, man, that's an oxymoron, isn't it? Because treasure, that's something you get excited about. Treasure something you're happy about. Treasure something, you know, you can't wait to be with. You know, I, you know, I just won the Powerball or something like that. I'm excited about that. That's your treasure. But, but you see, there's treasure in darkness. There's treasure in darkness when it's pushing us into the presence of light. And, of course, the light is God the Father. And it's only treasure in darkness when you begin to understand that the Lord is close to the brokenhearted and He saves those who are crushed in spirit. And when that truth, that truth that the Lord is close to the brokenhearted, that He saves those who are crushed in spirit, when that truth transcends into your mind, it gets into your soul, it becomes, that, that truth becomes a treasure in the midst of pain. It becomes a treasure in the midst of darkness. And so when you walk through something that's dark, when you walk through something that's hard, when you get into a valley, anybody ever walked through a place and you just were scared? You were walking somewhere and you thought, man, I don't need to be here. I'm kind of scared about that. Anybody? Few, maybe? My wife loves Christy. She loves to go to haunted houses during Halloween. I don't. I don't like scary movies. I don't like scary houses. I don't like scary people. But when it's Halloween time, we have to go to all these haunted houses because she likes them. And early on in our, in our relationship, I figured out why she liked them. Because she never has to see any of it. Every time we go into one of those, she, she always makes me go first. And then she grabs hold of my arms uh, and, and like she's hanging on for dear life. And then she just takes her head and she buries it in my back. And she uses her head to just kind of force me through the haunted house. 
I think that's kind of the way it is with God, though, when we're going through something in, in our life, when, we're, when there's a struggle, when there's a pain, when there's a heartache, when we've lost a child, when we've lost our finances, when we've lost other children. I mean, come on, that's when God's there. That's when He's the closest. That's when, he, that's when we can grab onto Him for dear life and we can just bury our head in His back and just let Him lead us through that valley to lead us through the valley of the shadow of death, right? Where we will fear no evil, right? Because God is with us. He's close to the brokenhearted. He saves those who are crushed in spirit. And for those of us who walk with Christ, we look at problems a little bit differently, don't we? Because even, even though sometimes we ask the question, God, where are you? Hey, God, what's going on here? God, why are you doing this? God, what is, what's going on? Ultimately, we turn back to God because He's the one waiting on us, right? And no matter what I've gone through, and I trust that this is the same with you, that when I get through this pain, this agony, this whatever it is that's going on, whatever in my life it is that hurts so bad, when I get through it, I can just look up and I can say, God, thank you for being there because He promised He would never leave us. He would never forsake us. He's always there so that we can turn back to Him. I love what it says in Psalm 73, 28. It says, but as for me, the nearness of God is my good. The nearness of God is, is my good. So when we're going through something that seems like, hey, God, where are you in the midst of all of this mess? Where are you in the midst of all this trouble? Remember, just to be in the presence of God or to have God be in your presence, just to be in the presence of God is, is good, even though sometimes it feels like it's not. We need to remember that it's always good. The nearness of God is my good. That's the treasure in the darkness. The nearness of, the nearness of God. But, but as for me, the nearness of God is my good because the Lord is close to the brokenhearted and He crushes and He saves those who are crushed in spirit. And when you look back at the Bible and you just kind of survey the context of Scripture and you look at the biblical characters that you find in the Bible, you look and you see what they did. What, what hardships that, that they had. You see what they endure, endured. And you can take any number of them. You can take a David or Abraham or Isaac or, or Moses or Elijah or Peter or Paul. I mean, the list goes on and on and on, doesn't it? These, these are all characters and they all, they all endured pain. They all endured hardships, but they all understood the presence of God. That for them, the nearness of God was good. That God was in the middle of their crisis. That He was in the middle of their pain. He was there. But perhaps there's no more character, more profound in Scripture that we can look to for this than the Son of God, Jesus. Because you see, Jesus, He was the sinless Son of God. He was, he was falsely accused. He was sentenced to be flogged. He was crucified. And I don't know if you know what flogging is, but, but it's, it's not a, you, you think, oh, well, that doesn't sound that bad, right? It, it wasn't great. They, they would they would take you and they would stretch you out across a, a wooden post. They would tie you that and they would get your back fully exposed. And then they would take a whip and it would have it would be like a whip of cat of nine tails. And it would have shards of glass and shards of, of pottery and just anything that they could, anything that was sharp and jagged. And they would whip you with that. And when they pull that whip back, it would just pull, literally pull the skin off of your back. It was not a, painful, uh, not a pleasant process. And by Roman law, you could only be sentenced to, to have... 39 lashes, because they believed 40 would kill a person. If, if, you, were, if you were flogged 40 times, you, just, you couldn't possibly survive it. And yet Jesus was sentenced to 39 plus 1. After, after he's flogged, he's stripped of all his clothing. His lots were cast by Roman soldiers for, for his clothes. He, he's beaten within a very inch of his life. They take a crown of thorns and, and they place it on his head. And after all of that is done, they, they, they make him carry a cross up a hill. That hill was known as Golgotha, the place of the skull. 
And there he's put on that cross and he's nailed to it with spikes through his hands and spikes through his feet. And then he's lifted up and as they lift him up, they, they put a sign above his head that said, Hail, King of the Jews. And people gather around him and they looked at him and they spit on him and they mocked him. One criminal even said, hey, you saved others, now save yourself and save us too. It's the creation mocking the creator. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of pain in the midst of, of that scene. There's a lot of pain that's going on there, a lot of physical pain. But there's also some other consequences that, that, that are going on there. Because you see, the, the weight of the sin, the weight of all of humanity is, is upon Jesus there. Your sins, my sins, everybody's sin is upon Jesus. And those consequences bore on him in that moment. It's written in Matthew 27, 46. I love these words and yet I hate these words. You ever have a love-hate relationship with something? Here's a, here's a verse for that. It says this, About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a, in a loud voice, Ella, Ella, lama sab- sabatani. And it means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In other words, God, where are you? Again, you ever felt like that? You ever just look up in the sky and say, God, what are you doing right now? God, I need you right now. Why aren't you here? Listen to me on this and let this sink in deep because we need to listen clearly. Listen, when Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Can I, can I tell you that there's more than one purpose to that? So many times preachers stand up, and I'm one of them that says, hey, that, that this is the moment when God turned his back on, on Jesus so that Jesus could carry the sin of the world. And I think that's true. The, I think that is true. That's, that's one of the purposes. But I think there's other purposes too. See, there, there was humanity, yes. There was significant pain in the physical realm, yes. But, but there was also some psychological pain or some spiritual pain that, that, that he's enduring through all of this, right? I mean, the physical pain, the spiritual pain, the hurt, God, where are you? But, but even more profound is this, is the fact that during all of this, Jesus is 100% man during this process. But he's also still 100% God during this process. The, the godness, uh, the deity of Jesus didn't disappear when he, when he went to the cross. And so I think when we study this, there's, there's probably something maybe a little bit more profound than Jesus just saying, hey, God, why'd you turn your back on me? See, Jesus was a rabbi, right? We know that, right? He was a teacher. He was a rabbi. And rabbis in ancient times, they taught by saying the first line of something. And then their students would finish what they were saying. It'd be like if I mentioned the, the first line of one of your favorite songs, what do you do? You finish the song, right? So, you know, if I said, hey, big wheels keep on turning. Right, all right, a couple of us, man, some of y'all got to get some better taste in music. Maybe, maybe blame it all on my roots. There we go. All right. So a couple of you. All right. See, you finish the song, right? And you finish the song, you have all the emotions with everything. It takes you back to that place when you first heard that song, right? And you get all the emotions and everything that's tied to it as well. And that's what happens here. It's happening. You see, because in Jesus' day, people would spend copious amounts of time memorizing Scripture and reciting Scripture. And so if a rabbi that you were sitting under said a line of Scripture then you were expected to know and to be able to quote back everything that was, that was under that line. I mean, you were supposed to, to be able to, to recite the, the rest of, of that passage of Scripture. And that's what happened. So, so listen, I believe that Jesus is pointing everybody who's watching his death, who, who is seeing what has happened to him, who's gathered around this cross, I believe that he's pointing every single one of those people to a prophetic and messianic psalm. Psalm 22. 
You see, everybody that was there, everybody that was around the cross when he proclaimed that, this truth, everybody would have known what I'm about to read to you. They would have known in their hearts, in their minds, because they had studied it. They, they would have been able to quote it back to you. And they now know that this is the fulfillment of this psalm. Jesus' words on the cross in Matthew, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Go back to Psalm 22, verse 1. So when people heard this, they knew that the scripture was being followed through this. Let me just read to you a little bit of this. Start at verse 1. It says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Right? That's exactly what Jesus said, right? But then it goes on. It goes, Why are you so far from saving me? So far from my cries of anguish. My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer them. By night, I find no rest. Jump down to verses 8 and 9. It says, He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in you. Yet you brought me out of the womb, and you made me trust you. Verse 11 says, Do not be far from me, for trouble is near, and there is no one to help. Jump down to verse 15, 15 through 19. It says, My mouth is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircle me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All of my bones are on display. People stare and they gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and they cast lots for my garments. Sound familiar? But you, Lord, do not be far from me. You are my strength. Come quickly to help me. Verse 22. I will declare your name to my people in the assembly. I will praise him. Verse 24. For he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him. In other words, God didn't turn his back. He has not hidden his face from him, but he has listened to his cry for help. Verse 27. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations will bow down before him, for dominion belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. And then you get down to verse 30 and 31. Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, he has done it. What were Jesus' final words on the cross? It is finished. See similarities between those two? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Listen, this may not have been as much of a question about God's presence, but actually a proclamation of God's goodness in the midst of a trial, in the middle of pain. This is a treasure in the darkness. When, when the darkest hour of humanity is upon Jesus, the Savior of the world, when He hung upon the cross, when the world watched with bated breath to see what was going to happen next. And understand this, that there was no darkness in any tomb that could contain the treasure and the power because of the resurrection of Jesus. He has done it. For you, for me, He has done it. That's an amazing thing that Jesus died, he was risen from the grave so that we could have life in the middle of pain to know that God is present with us because God is close to the brokenhearted. He saves those who are crushed in spirit. Listen, if Jesus was still in the tomb, then God's not with us. But because he came out of the tomb, we can know for sure that God is with us even in the midst of pain, even in the midst of suffering. Our God is still present because he's close. He's close to the brokenhearted. And he saves those who are crushed in spirit. I want to read the lyrics of, of the last verse of that song, It Is Well. And I just want you, I, I want these songs to, the, these lyrics to, to just resonate deeply with you. Just think about what it says. He writes, remember, he's writing this as he has, as he's gone by the, the site of where his daughters have, have perished. 
He writes this verse. He says, my sin. Oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross. And I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Oh, my soul. Can we get an amen to that? I mean, we don't have to worry about that anymore. It's on the cross. Our sin, not in part, but the whole is, is, is on the cross. It went with Christ. It is finished. He did it. It is done. Here in just a moment, we're going to sing that song, It Is Well With My Soul. We're going to use it as our invitation time. And I just want us to understand that this hymn, it may not be one that we've recognized over the years as one of anguish and question, but I want us to think of this hymn as one with great ex- expectation, with great hope of what God is going to, to do, what God is going to create a treasure in the darkness for you and for me. And as we sing this song, I want you to look at the circumstances that, that you find in your life and ask yourself the question, what shall I do? What shall I do? And can you answer that question and make the claim that it is well with my soul? Listen, the trials and tribulations in your life right now, they, they may not be monumental. Maybe they are. They, they might be. But if you're like me, it's, it's the, the little things that, that happen every day that just kind of keep mounting up and mounting up and mounting up. They're subtle, but, but there's a collateral impact that takes place. And the pain and the loss and the brokenness, it can be all-consuming. And they may not feel like a treasure right now. Understand that. It may not feel like a treasure right now. So I want you to be bold for a moment. And I want you to just think about all the things that are in your life right now. And that that you would be able to say, it is well with my soul. Let me pray for us.